0: If we have those things, and and we're at least aware of what's going on in our culture, we're aware of perhaps some of the needs and wants of our neighbors, our non-Christian friends, if we're aware of those things, uh, then we need to be ready to defend why it is that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and not in some other religion, or not in no religion, or in a secular sort of view.
1: Welcome to the Gary Wilkerson Podcast. Obviously, I am Gary Wilkerson. Honored to have you take some time to be with us today. I hope you'll take these next two episodes. We're both episodes with Dr. K. Scott Oliphant, uh, professor at Westminster Theological Seminary. He's an author, scholar, teacher, apologist, evangelist, and uh, just uh, has a pastor's heart as as well. Uh, In this this first episode, what we want to talk about is one of his books called Covenantal apologetics. Um, Two interesting words that aren't often put together. He's going to explain that for us, but he's also going to talk about love for people, love for um, bringing people into a living relationship with Jesus Christ. So stay tuned. Please listen. You're going to be encouraged. Thank you, Dr. Oliphant, for being on our uh, podcast today. Really thrilled to have you with us. Uh, live from Westminster Theological Seminary. appreciate you joining us.
0: Thank you, it's nice to be here.
1: Thank you, sir. We are uh, interested in a lot of what you've done. You've written many books, you teach at the seminary, you help uh, send pastors all around the world. Uh, One of the books I noticed you've written, uh, the the title really caught my attention, Covenantal Apologetics. And um, I know a little bit about what covenantal theology is, a little bit about what apologetics is. Uh, but I've never seen those two things put together in in one concept. Uh, uh, I was hoping to take some time to break those both those words down, and then also why you uh, put them together in one.
0: Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Um, th- this could take the whole time if we wanted it that's, to. But, that's fine. Uh, we'll yeah. we'll start with uh, we'll start with apologetics. It's a it's a word that not uh, every person every Christian is uh, intimately acquainted with, and I think there's good reason for that. Apologetics has been At least in the history of the church, uh, more philosophical and uh, in some points um, intellectual uh, than pastoral. But the word itself actually is a Bible word. It's not something that theologians invented. We we see the word in Scripture. Uh, It's also used in classical Greek. We might be familiar with Plato's apology, which was Plato's defense of Socrates. So apologetics just means defense. The New Testament. Picked up the word and used it, First Peter three, uh, to uh, sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, always being ready to. And there's the word in the Greek to do apologetics, to make a defense, uh, give a reason for the hope that is within us, but to do that with gentleness and reverence. So one of the things I think it's important for uh, Christians to understand is that apologetics is really meant for the church. That that verse in First Peter. 315 carries an imperative, and it means that all of us as Christians are to be ready to defend what it is we believe. And, and if it's if it's meant to be for all of us, uh, then, then we have what is necessary to accomplish the task. The Lord has given us what is necessary. What is necessary is the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And if we have those things, and and we're at least aware of what's going on in our culture, we're aware of perhaps some of the needs and wants of our neighbors, our non-Christian friends, if we're aware of those things, uh, then we need to be ready to defend why it is that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and not in some other religion or not in no religion or in a secular sort of view. So so the first point I I like to make is that apologetics is for everyone. It hasn't looked that way in the history of the church, again, because it's been so philosophically skewed. Now, there's a good reason for that. A lot of the objections that have come forth against Christianity have been in philosophical contexts and in philosophical terms. So it's legitimate, I think, even necessary for Christians who are able— to try to address those philosophical objections in the best way possible. And oftentimes you want to do that by using the philosophical vocabulary in order to to help to communicate with people who object to Christianity. But there's much more to apologetics than just the philosophical jargon in which the objections might come. So I think it's it's, uh, important for us to see uh, apologetics is a Bible word. A word that God uses in His own word, and and it's and therefore it's meant for all of us. And probably, I think this is true, um, Gary. Probably most of us sort of intuitively have done that anyway. When we've when we've evangelized, when we've shared the gospel with someone, we'll, we'll we'll communicate the gospel and someone's need for the gospel, and and maybe they'll raise a question. That question will be in the form of some kind of objection, maybe strong, maybe mild, and we we do what we can to answer that objection. Well, that's what apologetics does. And the objections can be relatively simple. They can be, be very complex. Uh, and, and I don't think uh, we're all meant to deal with the complexities of philosophy and those kinds of things. That's sort of specialized. But, but we are all meant to, to be able to address the objections that come. And we, we see this done, really, in Scripture, don't we? Jesus answered objections uh, against his ministry, that were lodged primarily against the religious experts. Um, Paul uh, says in in, uh, 2 Corinthians that he's destroying speculation and everything raised up against the knowledge of God, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now that destruction of those speculations and things raised up against the knowledge of God, those are objections to Paul's ministry and to Christianity specifically. And Paul says part of his... Um, task as a minister of the gospel, as an apostle, is to to destroy those uh, objections, those uh, those speculations, and and he does that. He says uh, not with the warfare, uh, uh, not with earthly, fleshly warfare, but the warfare that the Lord Himself gives us. So we're meant to be uh, armed and armored together as Christians, and the 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 armor that we have is um, the Word of God and. Uh, how we're meant to use that in answering those objections. So that's that's apologetics. It doesn't mean saying I'm sorry. It is kind <laughs> of a, an obscure word to many people, but it's a Bible word God uses it. So it's it's important for us to see that when we come to the to the notion of covenantal. Um, I, I use that term for a, a specific. Reason now, I'm I'm from a reformed uh, context. Not not everybody that I talk to or talk with is from that context, and I understand that. But uh, when when I use the word covenantal, uh, there's there's one primary thing that I'm that I'm trying to communicate there, and that is this: that that God has set up the world uh, from from creation forward, such that we are uh, in one of two one of two representatives that God has given to us in the world one is Adam and the other is Christ so when I when I say covenantal what part of what I mean by that is everybody is attached to one of two what we call federal or covenantal heads either Adam is is the head and we're attached to to Adam or Christ is is the head and we're attached to Christ. There's no third place to be for a human being. And I call that a covenantal relationship because I think scripture gives us that warrant. So the, the important point here is that um, every person, and I can I can expand on this if you want me to, but every person is related to the one true and triune God either by virtue of their being in Adam or by virtue of being in Christ. Again, there's no third representative. Paul calls Christ in in 1 Corinthians the the second or last Adam. So Christ came to do what Adam failed to do. Christ is our federal head when we are united to him by spirit-wrought faith. Adam is our federal head when we remain in our sins. And so there's, we call this the antithesis. That it's it's one of two places. Um, you either are in Adam or are in Christ. But either way, you're related to the true, true and trying God. If if you're re- related to God in Adam, then again, in, in the scripture category, is you remain under wrath. If you're related to God in Christ, you're under grace. And again, there, there are no, there's no third way here. There's no part wrath, part grace, n- none of this partiality. It's either one or the other. So so what I'm trying to communicate by the word covenantal, at least, is this much, that, that every person uh, to whom we come in contact who is outside of Christ is still nevertheless related to God in a particular way and is meant to give obedience to god by virtue of that relationship which obedience of course we recognize apart from christ is futile and can't be uh, sustained in any sort of consistent way which is why which is why the law can't save so it's a, the covenantal means federal head and all of us every human being made in the image of god has one of two federal heads
1: that brings such clarity to apologetics i would think um, you know cuz my mind when i think of apologetics you know, I think of various categories. Uh, this one's an atheist. This one's an agnostic. This one's a religious person, uh, maybe under the law, but not even knowing it, just legalistic living. Uh, this one being of another religion. So you're kind of trying to go all these places. You're really bringing it down to something I've never heard before. Just like you're either in Christ or in Adam. Uh, I, I guess I don't really picture a Hindu being in Adam. You know, I just pick for some reason, my mind goes, well, they're not a, they're not anywhere in the, on the on the scale of Adam or Christ. They're they're right. off the scale. But but you're putting in them every man in one of those two categories. I love that. That's that's brilliant.
0: Yeah. Well, let, let me try a little bit more here then. Um, the What what I'm trying to uh, emphasize is not it's not invented by me or or new with me, but it is something that had a particular focus during the time of the Reformation. Um, John Calvin, who who was a brilliant uh, exegete and and biblical scholar, uh, began to write his institutes lining out um, in the institutes the same topics that he saw the Apostle Paul dealing with in the book of Romans. So when you read Calvin's Institutes, he wants you to read his commentaries as well while you're reading your Bible so that all of this was meant for the church to help study Scripture. but you read the Institutes in the same way topically that you're going to read the book of Romans. So one of the first things that Calvin did, and this was part of his genius, is that he he read Romans 1, in in the way that it's it's meant to be read, as he as he exegetes what Paul's after in Romans one. So, can you give me just five or ten minutes? Oh, I would here? love it.
1: I'm, I'm I'm thrilled by what you're saying. It's really interesting.
0: Okay. Okay, good. So when Paul's uh, beginning to write the book of Romans, as we know, he says, I long to see you. I haven't been to see you yet. I want to be there, but he hasn't been there yet. And he knows that this uh, particular church in Rome is a strategic church uh, to whom he writes and has not visited. So I think that's one of the reasons why the Spirit of God inspired the Apostle Paul to write in the way that he did. We see something of the clarity of the unfolding of the gospel in the book of Romans uh, in a way that we don't in other books, um, because there's God has a particular purpose in mind as he inspires the Apostle Paul to write to Rome. So so the so what Paul wants to give the Romans is sort of the, the unfolding the redemptive unfolding of the gospel. And he, and he says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God, the Greek word there, the dunamis. We, we know that word from from dynamite. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then Paul says that that, that strategic verse in Romans one seventeen, justification is by faith, the righteousness of God is revealed uh, from heaven. That was one, one of the... Um, uh, passages that that spurred Martin Luther in many ways uh, to think more carefully about what he's doing in the Roman Catholic Church and to, s- to spark a reformation, because righteousness is from faith to faith. So Paul's talking about righteousness revealed, Romans one seventeen, and then he recognizes before he gets to that point, which he'll pick up again in, in chapter 3, before he gets to the point of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus, everyone needs to understand what condition we're in. Why do we need this righteousness? So he moves, 117, righteousness revealed, to 118, the wrath revealed. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what? Suppress the truth, hold it down in unrighteousness. And so Paul's thinking to himself, again, under the inspiration of the Spirit, I don't want to pretend this is a man-made thing. This is God inspiring the apostle. He's thinking What truth? The the people in Rome are going to say, What do you mean, Paul, suppressing the truth? What truth? Verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. That's the truth, that which is known about God. Even more specifically, verse 20, Paul tells us that it's the invisible attributes and eternal power of God that is known through the things that are made. So what what we're dealing with here in Romans 1 is is what we call in theology natural revelation. That is, God revealing himself through all things that are created in such a way, and this is so important for us to recognize, and this was Calvin's genius to bring this out at the beginning of the Institutes, revealing himself in such a way that all people know God. In the way that God makes Himself known in and through all of creation, so there. So, um, John Locke, you know, the empiricist philosopher, used to used to argue that we are a a tabula rasa, a blank slate, and the knowledge that we have is given through uh, reality imposing itself on us. Paul says there's no way that we're a blank slate because we're made in the image of God, and so, to the extent that we are self-conscious, we are God. Conscious—that is to say, God makes Himself known to every person made in His image. Because if we're meant to image God, we have to know the One whom we're meant to image, and God ensures that we know Him to such an extent. Paul says at the end of Romans one twenty, so that all of us are without excuse. Without excuse. That Greek word um, is one word, two words in English. Without excuse. The Greek word is on apologetus. Now you hear the word apologetics there and it means without an apologetic that is wow. there is no real defense for unbelief. Unbelief uh-huh. cannot be defended because it's by definition false. And false doesn't mean just wrong propositions in our mind. False means you can't consistently live this or think this. That's that's part of Paul's point. So so what w- what this is Calvin Calvin used the term that Latin term The sensus divinitatis, or the sense of deity, meaning the knowledge of God, resides by virtue of God's activity, not man's. That The the knowledge of God resides in every person. When you're self-conscious, you are God-conscious. God ensures that you know him. Then what sin does—okay, that's the positive. The negative is what sin does, Paul says, Romans 1.18— is it causes us to suppress or hold down that knowledge of god in such a way that he says verse 23 we exchange the truth of god for a lie verse 25 we worship and serve something created rather than the creator so so what paul's giving us here is a is a biblical way to exegete our culture and to exegete the sin that remains in us, the wrath of God that, that is the occasion for that, uh, that is the result of that sin. And, and, the, and, and, and what we recognize then is, to use your example, the reason there are Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims is because of a suppression of the truth and unrighteousness, and therefore a worshiping, Paul's word, and a serving, one, Romans one twenty five of something created. You create other gods, and so so Calvin's famous line is that our human hearts, left to themselves, our human hearts are idol factories. We produce we produce idols over and over again because we we won't have God in our thoughts. We hold it down. I've used the example before: somebody hold, trying to hold a beach ball underwater. You know, you're pushing, you're pushing. Occasionally, it's going to pop up. You're going to push it and push it again, because you won't have it in your mind and in your thoughts. So the condition of humanity is such that we are, by definition, image of God, therefore knowers of God, suppressing the knowledge of God and unrighteousness, and therefore exchanging the truth for a lie, worshiping and serving something created rather than the Creator. That's the condition of humanity, so that when we approach someone, either in evangelism, apologetics in our preaching, we recognize that we are always addressing someone who already knows God. Now, now that's not something we want to approach them with. We don't want to come to somebody and say, by the way, you know God, you're just suppressing it. But, but we understand that. Cal, Calvin's great line is that we're, we're to view the world through the spectacles of Scripture, all right? It I take these off and everything's a blur. I put them on and it all comes into focus. That's what scripture is meant to do for us. So that when we talk to people who are outside of Christ, we have to first see them through the spectacles of scripture and recognize this is what God has said about who they are. Then we listen to what they say about who they are. And we try to address those things in light of what God has already told us. So so the, so the most important point I can make in the entirety of this discussion is we have to reckon with the data, the truths of Scripture in the first place when we're communicating, obviously in evangelism, but also in apologetics, because it's only the truth of Scripture that is the dunamis, the power of God. To change human hearts from hearts of stone to hearts of
1: flesh—that's mm. yeah, so true. The I've heard you say. Uh, I listened to one of your talks there from Westminster. You 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 have an interesting view, and I think it's correct. The you start with Scripture as being uh, uh, being infallible. You start self-authenticated. Uh, yes, yeah, self-auth- yeah. Yeah, so you're not trying to build a case for Scripture, and then. Use scripture, so your starting point is. So when you're when you're doing apologetics with people, that that's your starting point. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so we, again, this is a, a basic Reformed view. So just to give you the historical component here, when 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 Luther and Calvin and, and and these guys were moving away from the Roman Catholic Church and recognized that there needed to be a reformation of the church, which is what the Reformation was about. There was there was uh, significant corruption in the church as well as false doctrine. One of the things that they had to deal with, uh, you know, we talk about the material uh, aspect of the Reformation and the formal aspect of of the Reformation, uh, the material justification by faith alone, the, the formal. So how do we get to justification by faith? We get there through the authority of Scripture. And what they had to reckon with is what is going to be, now that we're no longer Roman Catholic, what's going to be the foundation on which we can stand and from which we won't sink uh, into our own unbelief. And for the Roman Catholic Church, as we all know, the foundation, they say, is scripture and tradition, which turns into tradition trumping scripture, as we know historically. And, and Calvin and, and, and others said, no, the Bible has to be our basic Latin word principium, our basic foundation source of everything that we believe and think, which doesn't mean that um, certain uh, evidences about how the Bible uh, came to be, that those are utterly irrelevant. It just means that we don't build our case on those things, because if those things change, then our case dissolves. But we understand those things to be supplementative rather than constitutive of our foundation, and and so when I, I wrote a little book called Know Why You Believe, and, and, and the first chapter deals with the authority of Scripture, I use some uh, basic um, evidences in there about uh, the Bible and the manuscripts available and all those kinds of things. Those are those are important perhaps for people who have those kinds of questions, but we have to make clear those aren't the those aren't the reason that we accept the Bible for what it is. And then we also want people to recognize, and this goes all the way back to Aristotle, actually. Aristotle recognized that you've got to have a place to stand uh, uh, from which you then begin to posit or predicate right. something. In other words, in order to say X, you've got to, you've got to be standing somewhere, because if, if you're not standing somewhere, then you're going backwards into infinity, justifying every proposition that you utter. Why do you mean? Why do you believe that? Well, because of this. Well, why do you believe that? Well, because of this. And then on and on you go. Aristotle said that this can't this can't work uh, either intellectually or otherwise. Practically, you can't do that, and intellectually, it doesn't work. So you've got to stand somewhere. Aristotle's word there was arché, uh, source, head, something like that, and that's been uh, translated then into Latin as principium, and we call it a foundation or a source or something like that. So, so what we recognize is that God's revelation for the Christian has to be the foundation on which we stand. As we sit under God's teaching, we stand on the Word of God as the only place available on which we will not sink into our own devices and our own unbelief.
1: Amen. Amen. So where would you, what would your take be on, you know, you hear in some conversation, even from pulpits today, um, when you're talking about sharing Christ with others, like maybe in the 1940s and 50s, you could turn to somebody and say, well, the Bible says, uh, and some are saying now in our culture, you can't do that. You can't just start off by saying, well, the Bible says, and that'd be your place to stand. Uh, do you do you take issue with that or how, what do you think of that?
0: Well, yeah. So the the perceptive part of that is that our culture's changed and changed radically. You and I are both old enough to have lived through radical changes. Yeah. Almost, almost any adult is. Um, at this point in their lives. And so, you know, you, you always have to be thinking about um, the the best way as you understand it to to approach people and, and people are different. So there's no there's no one size fits all here. Um, but but I would say. You know, somebody once said you have a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. Now you can tell that's an old saying because newspapers <laughs> are, are going by the boards now, unfortunately. But um, but you have the Bible in one hand and 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 the daily news in the other hand, and and you're meant to to, to think about those things in tandem as the Bible interprets what's happening uh, in our culture. So there there probably are a lot more people now. Uh, who, if you said the Bible says, they would automatically just say, uh, "Sorry, I'm not there." But having said that, you can communicate the truth of God without saying the Bible says. So the the important the important point um, that that I've tried to make with people, and and I don't typically start here, but the important point to make is, uh, what do you do with Jesus? And 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 then. Then, when they respond to a question like that, let's say you, you're you know you're into a conversation that's that's you know maybe hours long or maybe over weeks and months, whatever the person you know. Um, what do you do with Jesus? And then you can begin to think about with them uh, why they would reject him and why they would reject Scripture. The, the fact of the matter is it's the truth of God that changes human hearts. So we, we cannot be reluctant to communicate that truth. There's nothing that we don't have anything in and of ourselves that can change a human heart. Only God has that. And and um, our, 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 our Reformed forebearers used to say that when you're speaking the Word of God, it has the all the power of the Word of God, even if you're not quoting the actual text. So when a preacher stands up in a pulpit and preaches the Word of God, if he's if he's true to the Word of God and faithful in his preaching, that has all the power of the Word of God itself. Once we recognize that, then we can can speak things that are true to the Word of God without saying, thus saith the Lord. We know thus saith the Lord, and the power's there, but in terms of persuasion, that might not be the, the thing that we want to say. And I, I think it's important for us to, to try as best we can to understand the person or the people to whom we speak.
1: Yeah, well, that's an important part of Just the Just, you know, the, to tell somebody the Bible says, you know, may not be the the great introductory uh, point of conversation with a person. But for what I hear you right. saying, so and I think so correctly, is we have to believe it for sure. And we have to believe that that is our power, that is our authority, that's our source. So you mentioned philosophy earlier, and that's an important part of it. But, you know, we don't take our stand solely on philosophy. We take it on the Word of God. And so there has to be a confidence in us to say that is our standing place, that is our starting place. You know, we, we don't ask the people who tell us, well, I don't believe in the Bible. We, we usually don't ask them, like, well, you know, give me a defense for why you don't believe in the Bible. They, they probably couldn't give you one and i th- i think uh, some of them have a few little things they heard in you know, culturally but uh, they would probably not be able to truly defend that but but you know they 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 have no problem saying no i don't believe in the bible uh, i don't believe it's the word of god but so so we shouldn't have a problem right to to say oh, no that's where i stand i do believe this is the uh, the authority of the word of god
0: yeah that's right and you know one of the things that um that we can that we can say as well again When I say these things, I'm I'm uh, assuming that there's been a conversation going on. So I'm not just saying, blurt these things out. But in the midst of a conversation, when we're dealing with these kinds of things, someone might say to us, well, I don't believe the Bible. And we might want to say to them something like, well... Um, I don't believe what you believe either, and that's why we're having this discussion. <laughs> I don't stand where you stand. You don't stand where I stand. If, if we did, there'd be not much to talk about. But um, maybe you can tell me where you're standing and, and why you why you put your faith there, why you trust that. And then we can talk about um, the Bible and what it says and why I think there's no other possibility available for human beings. So, so let's talk about your starting point, uh, your foundation, and then we can move to mine. Oftentimes, you'll find out that people haven't thought that much about their own foundation. You know, they're just sort of going with the flow. I mean, philosophers tend to be different because they, they um, get into these things. But, but, but typically, people are not uh, as um, uh, explicit about the place on which they stand. So, for example, you've got basically uh, two options available to you on human origins, either God made man, male and female, or we accidentally um, came up from whatever. Um, and, And if it's the if it's the latter view, we accidentally just sort of oozed up from the slime. Then I'd like to know where the foundation is for anything that you believe, because it looks for all the world like everything that we're talking about is accidental. Since you're an accident, I'm an accident. My thoughts are accidental. How can we trust even the thoughts that we have if they themselves accidentally oozed up from the slime? And you did too, and I did too. And and so where's the dignity? Uh, Where's the consistency? Where's the coherence? If that's your foundation, it looks to me like, you know, as they say, you've got a lot of explaining to do. Um, there's just not anything there that I can hang my hat on or can trust since it's all accidental in the first place. That's one way to begin to discuss certain things like that. You know, Francis Schaefer had this great illustration. I cannot remember where I read it or maybe I heard it, but he he, ta- he talked about um, talking to a, a, a radical materialist on a, on a ship that he was on one time that they, they were out having this discussion, you know, and this was Schaefer's great strength was just answering questions and Pulling things out of people, and they were talking, and he was talking about his radical material, so that materialism. There's nothing in the world except matter, only matter. And 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 Schaefer said as he ended the discussion, the man was about to retire to go to bed, and Schaefer said, "Can I just ask you this one question before you go back? Um, how can you know that you love your wife, who's who's in the cabin waiting for you? How can you know that? See, that's a great question yeah. for a materialism for a materialist because love is not material right. love is something that transcends that and if you're a radical materialist where does the love of your wife fit into your worldview and into your life and, and it's a it's a poignant question it's a perfect question uh, it hopefully it nagged him a little bit because he, he would understand oh, wait a minute I do love my wife but we're both just accidentally what we are by virtue of matter just oozing up uh, that's the kind of thing that it's important to see when we're talking to people. Um, That the only reason the man can love his wife is because, as one man has put it, he's he's using borrowed capital from Christianity. He's taking our stuff, importing it into his worldview in order for that worldview to have some kind of meaning and substance. Uh, Love just doesn't fit if you're a materialist.
1: Wow. Mm -hmm. I love what you're saying because, you know, in in your line of work, uh, being in in the seminary, Mm -hmm. and, you know, obviously you have some academic requirements to pass on to your students. But uh, I just wanted to thank you today because your conversation shows, not only do you have the mind to think these things through, but there's something of your heart coming out as well. And a lot of what you're saying today is very relational. You're talking about love of your wife. You're talking about listening to people. Uh, sometimes you don't get that in the academic world so uh, thanks for sharing that with our listeners today we really do appreciate that we're going we're gonna to have you come back on our next uh, episode and we're going to dig a little bit deeper I want to kind of go back to what you were talking a little bit about from Romans uh, the, that, and maybe tie that into culture uh, so uh, please join us uh, in our next episode with Dr. Oliphant thank you doctor for being with us today look forward to having you here next time as well thank you Thanks for listening to the Gary Wilson Podcast. Our time with Dr. Oliphant was so helpful and encouraging. I hope it encouraged you as much as it did me. I, I feel like I learned a lot, and I want to go deeper. I want to know God more. I want to know and trust his word more and be able to show God's love to people more. Hey, I just want to bring your attention to a new item we have here at World Challenge. It's a book that's just about to be released. It's 50 of the most powerful sermons that my father, David Wilkerson, preached. Over 50 years of preaching, he preached some messages that were really life-transforming, culture shifting and important for us even to this day. And so we've collected those 50 uh, sermons and put them all in one book called Fire in His Bones, and it's, it's from the passage in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9, where Jeremiah was discouraged about the, and, and downcast about the situation in his culture, and he was ready to give up, but he said, I, I can't because there's a fire shut up in my bones And my father, David Wilkerson, had that. Uh, You can pre-order that book now. Anywhere you buy books, Barnes & Nobles or Amazon, other places, uh, you can pre-order that book. We'd love for you to pre-order it and uh, get ready and have it delivered to you as soon as it's there. Uh, Coming into the the year 2023, we will have some copies available at World Challenge as well. And there are many other resources here at World Challenge. Uh, You can go to our website, www.worldchallenge.org, and um, find uh, places to Uh, receive sermons, receive uh, newsletters that we have a daily devotion, so great things. But I particularly wanted to highlight uh, the new book, Fire in His Bones.
0: Each week, this podcast reaches thousands of listeners. This critical work is made possible by the generous contributions of individuals like you who believe in the mission of World Challenge. Thank you for listening and supporting. World Challenge, transforming lives through the message and mission of Jesus Christ visit us online at worldchallenge.org.